Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Welcome one and all to your movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast. It's Be Real on the Playlist Podcast Network and my name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here with a special category of movies as we are every single time. Hot on the heels of My Own Worst Enemy. If you didn't hear us talk about Us, Fight Club, and Gemini Man, movies where protagonists fight themselves... You got to hear that noise. I thought it was pretty good, Noah. I think we did great. The interview was great. Everything's great. Thanks, Mia Vicino. We are back with a uh, a slightly thornier and a more inherently political category just a few days later in, in recording time. We're going to talk about the subgenre, the, the, the sub-subgenre of Nazi satires in the comedy realm because Jojo Rabbit is, uh, is freshly out in... Uh, in coastal markets. We're also going to talk about the original producers, 1967, and then the 1984 Zucker Abraham Zucker film. Oh, Zazz. Top Secret. Zazz, yes. Top Secret, yeah. I had n- not only never seen Top Secret, I had never even heard of Top Secret. I had Considering neither. how famous the people adjacent to it are, that seems like a very embarrassing hole in my filmic knowledge. I also, for extra credit, watched The Great Dictator, which kind of started this, you know, is, is definitely the the original keystone of making fun of Nazis in film. So um, I might refer to that a couple times. But uh, as always, we are so thrilled to be part of the Playlist Podcast Network. Please check out our fellow shows like The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, and Indie Beat. You can subscribe and get our podcasts wherever you may listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. And thanks to California College of the Arts and their writing MFA program for uh, generously sponsoring the show. We appreciate it. Do you want to start with Jojo Rabbit? I would love to talk about Jojo. Well, should we start off the show by saying how we feel about Nazis? Oh, sure. Best to get that out in the open. I'm starting to feel like they're problematic. Right. Ironic coming from you, the uh, (laughs) blue-eyed, blonde hair, big hand, large feature boy. Big hand? That's not like something that the Nazis pride themselves on. You're like out of central casting for like German Olympians circa like (laughs) Jesse Owens. (laughs) Well, I would have rightfully gotten my ass kicked in such a race. Also... Um, do I really, uh, mostly Norwegian? Is that better? That's fine. Thank you. 
You're either uh, an extra in the Jens Lechman biopic or the Jesse you. Owens biopic. Yeah. And now you go. How do you feel about Nazis? Yeah. Now you talk about it. Well, um, as a Jewish person, I've never been super high on the Nazis. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. Both historically and the somewhat uh, incongruous rise in contemporary culture. So I have to say then that I did view it with that lens when I was like, oh, I'm going to go to a press screener of Jojo Rabbit, the latest Nazi satire. Yeah. And I was like, this movie can't help but being put in the context of where we are as a country right now. Right. Even though Taika Waititi wrote it and was trying to get it made in like 2011. But yeah, it's definitely being, you know, market. I think the buzz phrase is an anti-hate satire. It's definitely being sold for um, awards consideration in the honestly in a more just like stylish, funnier kind of like green book thing. Right. If I have no idea what Jojo Rabbit will do uh, come award season, but it won the audience award in Toronto, which uh, green book also won. And seems like it could ride that line of like, you know what we really need in 2019? A movie that says that the most generic forms of racism are bad. (laughs) Right. Those are my favorite kinds of movies. And also Mm -hmm. pitching this in the indie community is like, it's like Moonrise Kingdom mixed with Anne Frank. And it's like, okay. that's Those are two comparisons for a movie. Do you want to say off the top what you make of the fact that, uh, um, I mean, we both noticed, but you were the first one to bring it up that all of the movies we're talking about today are directed by Jewish people. Pretty interesting that like Jewish people think that Nazism is a really funny form of like low culture, high humor kind of ripe for satire. And of course, Chance and I, and maybe other film dorks read that AO Scott piece uh, in the New York times about like, how do we feel about people making fun of Nazis and aren't Nazis getting the last laugh and then ultimately ending on the most unequivocal maybe? Right. <laughs> oh, always a good way to end. I like to think that our shows, you typically end on maybe. Yeah. Um, Noah called Fight Club bad, bad. Did he believe it? Did he believe know. it? I don't know. He kind of equivocated on Twitter later. Whoa. Um. Okay, but let's talk about Jojo Rabbit. So, uh, this is the sixth film from New Zealand director Taika Waititi, who has, uh, in recent years, uh, become rather famous uh, for making Thor Ragnarok, Hunt for the Wilder People, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Um, He loves to make sweet yet irreverent movies, this movie reminded me of how much he likes the dynamic, the very old Hollywood dynamic of people disagreeing vehemently, comedy through argument before they ultimately like come together and, and love each other in the end, which is absolutely something that happens again in Jojo Rabbit. Um, the logline for this movie is that it's told from the perspective of like, what, a 10-year-old in the Hitler youth, in the, the waning days of the war, um, the Second World War. Yeah, his hometown is basically like deserted. The Allies are coming, but you still got to go to Hitler Youth Camp regardless. Oh, and his imaginary friend is Hitler, played by uh, Taika Waititi. Um, Sam Rockwell plays the uh, like disgraced commandant who's been like sent home. He like lost his eye or something, got a bunch of people killed, so he's been sent home to like train the kiddos. 
Um, his mom is played by Scarlett Johansson. Uh, I don't think it's a spoiler because you know in the trailer that uh, they're they're hiding a young Jewish girl played by Thomas and Mackenzie in the house. And it basically becomes a, a comedy around whether Jojo can keep this secret and how he bonds and overcomes his prejudice vis-a-vis uh, -vis Elsa. His master Jojo. You're a top man. Prepare to leave the house. Today you boys will be involved in such activities as war games, ah! ambush techniques, and blowing stuff up. I don't think I can do this. Russ? Of course you can. comes to. When I was your age, I had an imaginary friend. Got me in so much trouble. Kids, it's time to burn some books. Yeah! You're growing up too fast. Ten-year-olds shouldn't be celebrating war and talking politics. Hitler. I wish more of our young boys had your blind fanaticism. <laughs> Did you know Jews can read each other's minds? But how would you know if you saw one? They could look just like us. Hi. It's not a very complicated movie for being such a complicated movie. Yep, exactly. My first thought is like, this movie is perfectly pleasant, and that in its own way is quite confusing. That's right. And I think like that's maybe what turned me off about it in the first few moments is the idea that Nazism, of course, it's satire. I'm not a fucking idiot. But <laughs> the idea that they seem to be having so much fun at yeah. Hitler Youth and like rocking out to German Beatles and like going through the whole thing, it just seems like such a, oh, it doesn't seem so bad here, which is a weird place to start. What did you think of that anachronism? Come, the, come get me Dinah Hunt, a song from 20 years later. It's so. I mean, I think it's just supposed to speak to this kind of boyhood that is transpiring and the sort of. Because I guess war has like torn all the men out of this place towards the end of the war because they're either all dead or on the front lines. Um, has like made all these people into boys. It made us all the men into boys. Mm -hmm. So like maybe it's getting about like boy culture or something like that. But then again, like it's charming. Like I think the anachronism is charming mm -hmm. and that's just like a weird note to begin on. I'd say it lays the charm on pretty thick. I think that the first appearance of Taika Waititi as Hitler might be the best like you've seen it in the trailer and on all the talk shows the note where he goes what's wrong jojo um and he's like well people used to say all kinds of mean things about me oh this guy's a lunatic he's gonna get us all killed then he has this <laughs> great shrug um i think may be the best comedic note of the entire movie well at some point it is springtime for hitler yes and it's like unclear because he does that like you know, it was springtime for Hitler from the OG version where he, he says baby after everything. Oh, right. <laughs> so he sort of puts on that affect of like, this is not meant to be an accurate representation of Adolf Hitler. No. Um, but at the same time, like what laugh are you playing it for? This like lovable psychopath. And I don't know, like that's such a weird take on 
Hitler. It's let's talk a little bit more about this movie's like take on on Nazism because I think it's actually borrowing a lot from movies we'll talk about or around. Um, yeah. Today, uh, this idea that the pageantry of the Nazis is uh, flamboyant and almost campy is definitely right. something from the producer's musical. I also think some of this movie's innocence, even as it relates to the cutest little 10-year-old kids, like stops it from being a little smarter. Because if you think about um, the emotional wave of bitterness that helped give rise to Nazism came from a generation of young men being utterly humiliated coming out right. of the First World War. And if you hear, listen to the like far-right movements that came about in Europe in the 70s and 80s and the Nazi apologism that happened, you know who kept apologizing? It was bitter young men who were mad that they got beaten. Um, and I think that that, how is that not there? How is there not a character in this movie? And I mean, God forbid that... Uh, that little um, Archie Yates as Yorkie, <laughs> the cu- the cutest little robot, uh, cardboard robot kid I've ever seen. I didn't like want him to like actually hate people, but I think this movie underestimates the fact that when indoctrinated to do so, eleven year olds can absolutely hate with every fiber right. of their being. I mean, I think it does some work at addressing that when you're at the Hitler Youth Weekend getaway or whatever. And there are like the 14, 15 year olds who are, or the, maybe they're older, maybe they're like 17, 18 year olds who are like killing animals and, you know, bullying them or whatever. But Watiti has like a very specific idea about like when people turn for better or worse. And he like Mm -hmm. thinks it's about 12 years old or something. So with this 10 year old, you have this boy who's just regurgitating the convictions of the quote unquote cool people around him. But ultimately he portrays him as a character that's deeply malleable by life experience which yeah. is ultimately where that parable comes in of the oh there's the Jew in the in the woodwork in the in the floorboards in the in the walls. Mhm. And I like the since you're alluding to Elsa, I like some of their dynamic. I think it's kind of a it's a little bit cribbed from like do the right thing where they have sure. that showdown about the uh like the famous Jewish people like oh, the, my Einstein to your Wagner or something. Um is uh is clever and i think like does ring true as a way that like 12 year olds would like be like yeah well i'll raise you the most famous person from my club at the same time though i just don't know i wasn't sure like did you feel like scarlett johansson was both like way too much and not enough in this movie when she's on screen like in those dance numbers i don't think that the the number where she pretends to be both the mother and the father is not nearly as like compelling as i think the movie believes it is mm-hmm it's just kind of awkward. I get yeah. what she's doing. I just don't know that she has the range to pull something. Like if Julia Roberts did that scene, like that's something else. Oh, I don't know that she's got that. Um, and then she's sort of abruptly not there too in a way that's like, who was that person? Oh, and now she's gone. Oh, and now she's back. And then ultimately, I mean, her fate is tied into the climax of the movie. Um but it's it's very weird how I you're supposed to think about her as this like pillar of good, right? Who's like taken in the Jewish girl right. and like is pretending to go along with it, even though she's secretly part of the resistance. 
but there's just such a weird inhumanity about like, we really never know anything about her. She's always wearing a mask. She's either literally like done her face up to look like the father, or she's like done her face up to look cute in front of the Nazi men who will then like not pay too much attention to her. Mm -hmm. She's just a very, very, very famous person to be in this role to the point where I think it's a little bit distracting. Um, Certainly. Let's talk about, the imaginary friend being Hitler. Let's talk about the imaginary friend. So this is the one of the two movies where there is a, a rendering of Hitler. Mm-hmm. And Watiti is like pretty funny at it. And I think by the end you realize that this is like probably a bad dude. Um, but it's the first time that I've ever thought Hitler was cute mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. fun or like, oh, Hitler. Right. <laughs> This movie is full of those moments where it's like, oh, Hitler, why you have right. to eat that unicorn? Yeah, it, I think it works really well on the, on the level of just like yelling fire in a crowded theater. You show up, you show Hitler in any scene, like even if you've already seen him 50 times, it's like, whoa. And so the visual comedy works really well. Like I think back on um, the first time I saw What We Do in the Shadows where, you know, he pulls back the tomb door for the first time and the <laughs> vampire with like the fangs like shrieks at him. And that's kind of what it's like when the camera turns and it's like, oh, Hitler's in the room. Right. Um, I Hitler's just think... not only in the room, he's a big part of this movie. <laughs> I think it works really well. I mean, he's got a, has a great eye. I think when, uh, this is stupid to say, paradoxical to say, but I don't think the logic of the imaginary friend works really well. Because why would the boy's own imaginary friend um, badger him in ways that aren't super consistent even with like the way that real life people are bullying him? Right. It makes me feel like his friend literally is Hitler, which he's not. Right. And then like I didn't understand too why Hitler was so like wishy-washy about like if there's a Jew in your house, you think that even the Hitler on your shoulder would be like, that's this is horrible. Like get the SS right now. Yes. So, but it's almost like Hitler is the devil on his shoulder in this very sort of uncomplicated role, the same way mom, Scarlett Johansson, is on the other shoulder, like being the, the like, angel. And then what's unfolding to him with these two conflicting sets of morality is his relationship uh, with the young girl. Let me ask you this. Does this movie work well as a satire? I think no. I, I think, think it's so not too. silly enough to be a satire. I think if anything, the only thing satirical about it is the POV. Ultimately, though, everything going on on screen is played as real. There's no, like, goofy... There's some sight gags, like when he takes the knife to the leg. Right. You know, and there's... Some, but, like, there's not enough humor on screen to let you know that this is a satire. This is just a Nazi movie, maybe. I mean, I want to... I. I'll give another shout out to uh, when he's trying to volunteer after the grenade's gone off. And like, well, maybe you, Rebel Wilson's like, maybe we need someone to walk the clones. It's a very, <laughs> it's a good joke. Um, the German shepherd joke where they're actual shepherds is stupid. That That's like a... See, that's know. like, a, I know a little German. And then there's the little guy at the table with the lederhosen exactly. on. Exactly. Exactly. That's the level. Um, but you have to like, if you're going to do the Zaz treatment of the Nazis, you like have to go for it or not go for it. Like you can't have a move um, like the moments of total, like emotional destruction that this movie has. It's got some dark points to it. I want to talk about the great dictator for one second, because 
that's a fascinating movie, you know, coming out in 1940 with Chaplin actively making fun of Hitler, like as the Nazis are invading Poland and France. Um, But it came out of Chaplin watching Triumph of the Will and while his like contemporary directors were like horrified by what a piece of compelling propaganda that Riefenstahl had created, Chaplin was like, this is hilarious. Look how pompous this motherfucker is. Like, let's take him down. Um, but the thing that's so striking about that to me, you know, of, of like cinema being a propaganda machine at the time of the Second World War is like people also didn't like really know much about the inner workings of Hitler, if anything, right? They only knew the propaganda sheen, and so taking down the propaganda sheen was very powerful. And then, But then flash forward, you know, 80 years, and it's like, this is the thing I didn't, I think was missing from the A.O. Scott piece, which is that Nazis are such a singular, agreed-upon form of badness. And when A.O. Scott writes about, like, the rise of fascism and right-wing fanaticism in the U.S., the vast majority of people perpetrating that would still not align themselves with Nazis. They would say, no, the other side is the Nazis, right? Yeah, at no point in any three of these movies do you, like, really sympathize with the Nazi party. Mm-mm. You In this one, maybe you sympathize with a family of reluctant Nazis, you know, and maybe think that the Nazis are cute, but you never, like, respect them. No. So that's what I didn't quite follow about the Scott piece is he's saying like we've gone so far into like making fun of Nazis that we're actually condoning them. And I don't think that that's true. I think the real mistake that the 2019 viewer would make would be seeing them as weak or like the inevitable – like inevitably to be squashed or something and not realizing that they are scary. Like that's the problem. I think that's that's true and then I think like like we talked about with like the Hitler sight gags of like that's just such a singular bit of iconography in pop culture that it that making fun of Hitler for instance does not do anything to skewer a, a president who just pulling something right out of the hat here today said that the Kurds along the Turkish border need to quote be cleaned out like the Nazis there's, it's so their own thing that when you make a Nazi satire in 2019, I don't think it does very much to make fun of fascism the world over. It's not that critical of fascism. Yeah. Right. That's what's so weird about it is that Nazism in this movie is only just the sort of antagonistic force. It's man versus society. And... But it's not critical of that society. It just shows it as like an opposite force of this young kid like connecting with his first crush, Mm, you know, and then maybe with his mother too and dealing with the absence of his father. But fascism and Nazism is the setting here. It's not a movie. It's not the great dictator and it's not even using Nazism as the same thing as the producers. It's just creating like goofy – it's creating goofiness out of your World War II – sophomore year of high school class of like oh isn't this funny if 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 it was instead of donald trump you know talking to you all the time it was like hitler was like giving you these little messages so much that he was your imaginary friend but it's not critical of like what either of these guys appeal to does this movie survive for you on the watchable level is it fun is it watchable i did not enjoy myself uh when i did see it Right. But Stephen I Merchant's after, really good. 
Stephen Merchant's really good. Again, his role is too serious. Like, that needs to be, like, more of a Leslie Nielsen kind of, like... Even, like, the Heil Hitler going around and around, like, wasn't funny by the fourth time that they did it. That, too, reminded me of, like, there's a great bit in The Great Dictator of, like, where he... Hinkle goes to shake hands with the Mussolini analog, and, of course, Hitler goes up, and the Mussolini goes in for the handshake, and they can't connect because they keep waving their hands past each other. It's, like, an excess of ceremony makes it impossible for people to, like, look normal, but, like, just everyone having to say Heil Hitler to everyone else is, like, not a very creative version of that at all. Right. And so much funnier when, like, military guys are saluting each other uh, in the movie we'll talk about last, Top Secret, when he takes off his helmet to, like, say hi to the general and he's the strap is still attached to, <laughs> under his chin. Like, yeah. that's funny. That's, yep. like, a sight gag that, like, shows that these guys are fundamentally incompetent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's cute and that's confusing. It's nice and that's confusing. Um, but it's not that deep. I don't think it's that inquisitive. Um, ah, I think it's kill a the bad... rabbit chance. Kill uh, Jojo hey, Rabbit. Hey, 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 hey. I think it's bad. Good. I think this one is a soft bad bad. I hear that. We were clearly trending that way. It's just weird that it feels like Taika was building to this, but then like if you look closer at it, it's like actually he was coasting to this. Yeah. Because it's I mean, an old you would project. Think, you would think it's like a one for them, one for me kind of project. Right. But this is not some – it doesn't feel like an indulgent sort of like art piece. It's no. just like weird commercial fare that just chose a totally bizarre subject matter. Right, right. So now I'm thinking about the the Disney exec a few months ago who was like, I'm uncomfortable with Jojo Rabbit. And I was like, oh, you're uncomfortable with creativity? Go fuck yourself. But maybe they were uncomfortable with it because it's not a good satire. I mean, I think that there are, if Taika Waititi did not have the goodwill that he had around the Thor franchise, then people would be more, way more critical of this movie and, or this movie just wouldn't have gotten released. Yeah, I think that's a major point. Can you imagine if, uh, like, Mike Myers was like, I'm going to make Jojo Rabbit? Yeah, or Todd Phillips. <laughs> I think I'll say in my own defense that Mike Myers is a better comparison. Because he would, like, play sure. Hitler. Yeah, from the creator of Austin Powers comes... That's yeah, a little twee and upsetting. Sorry, Jojo Rabbit. Um, okay, the producers... I would love to do that. All right, we're ducking back to 1967 and the first movie from Mel Brooks. It's so simple. Step one, we find the worst plane in the world, a surefire flop. Spring time for Hitler. Step two, I raise a million bucks. A lot of little old ladies in the world. I love you. What? I love you. I love you! Step three, you go back to work on the books. Only lists of backers, one for the government, one for us. Hey, God, I'll do it! You got it! Step four, we open on Broadway. Step five, we close on Broadway. Step six, we take our million bucks and we fly to Rio de Janeiro. You have this producer who is implicated in financial misconduct by an accountant 
And the accountant sort of throws out, well, you could get around this by just getting more money than you need for productions and then closing them very quickly. And because the plays aren't successful, like nobody's going to ask how much money you made because they're going to assume it's nothing. So if you can find a play that will absolutely not make money, you can give 200 people 100% share of the profits because there never will be any profits. Um, so the two of them, this is Zero Mostel as Max Bialystok and uh, Leo Bloom played by a very young Gene Wilder. Yeah, he fresh out of Bonnie and Clyde. Incredible. And so they go off and, and do this plan by uh, Bialystok raises money by uh, seducing older women with large pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. And Bloom just tries not to have an anxiety attack. <laughs> Uh, And they find this script that they think will be so offensive as to not allow anyone to derive any enjoyment of it called Springtime for Hitler. Uh, And the subtitle is like a gay romp through Hitler's – like Hitler's Germany or something. Adolf and Eva's. Yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. And so they find – and of course the person who's written it is a Nazi – a former Nazi – yeah, officer uh, of some kind who's like Franz Liebkind. Yeah, Franz Liebkind, who's just hanging out on the roof of some apartment building in the West Village, and yeah, they get this play from him and they start to put it on. They find the worst director possible. They cast the most ridiculous person they can find as the Hitler role, and they put it up on Broadway. And I mean, I guess I could just tell you that that's the 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 joke is that it actually does make money because the people who see it think it's a satire and think it's hilarious fun fact so it's a gay romp with adolf and eva at berchtesgaden <laughs> which is a like a bavarian alps like like vacation slash stronghold which is where right. you get all the like uh you know the gay romp with the lederhosen is like it's vacation time incredible springtime um yes so uh i'd never seen this movie before it is instantly kind of knock you on your ass like desperate and manic and crazy and the the freezing of the of the title sequences as uh max bialystok like oh chases God, the these title, old ladies the title around sequence the room. of this movie is the first half an hour of this movie it go, which i think is both like great because that scene is so such like dead sweaty desperate insanity but also like the the interstitial parts of this movie that would seem like they actually need to do quite a bit of heavy lifting, like for instance, like Leo making his decision to do this, which is turned into a musical number, not coincidentally in the play, um, is kind of like so featherweight by comparison to this like 20 minute, like drag out brawl that they have. Um, but I mean, God, the screen presence of zero and gene is unbelievable. What's so clear to me that this was always bound for the stage, this Mm -hmm. property. Like it's written like a play and the first act of it, the first half an hour is all in the same room. It makes way more sense that way. It certainly does. Yeah. Um, But it's kind of boring knowing that they're really not going to do anything. And the rest of the scene changes throughout the movie are just there because it's a movie and they like have to put them in Central Park at some point. Sure. Sure. Um, I don't know if I agree that it's boring. I definitely agree that it is virtually indisputable that the best part of the movie is 
springtime for Hitler, and you're just it's the waiting. Last act of the movie. Yeah, you're, you're just, just waiting, waiting for, for them. For you're just waiting for them to put on the Jojo Rabbit of this movie, right? Which is amazing. Like to the just the idea that it's done in complete earnestness on the part of the performers <laughs> and with complete irony for like the producers in the audience still just fucking kicks like the the clown face and vibrato of look out here comes the master race is still so fucking funny when you think about how that's landing with the audience um it right. just makes you want more of that i almost think that's the biggest problem with jojo rabbit is the idea that like no one's playing it straight mm. and like at least the funny characters in it whereas like the hitler in this is playing it in earnest like all of his officers are playing it in earnest and okay. that's what's so like confusing and ultimately hilarious for the audience is like they just their brains cannot process that these people are playing this straight they must be in on some joke right they don't know about but also Broadway's famous for that, too, which mm. is kind of interesting. I mean, even up until, like, Book of Mormon or something, you're just, like, making fun of, like, something you sort of, like, that's problematic mm-hmm. in a very earnest and, like, over-the-top way. Yeah. Um, I really love the performances. I think oh, Zero, sure. I think Zero Mostel is great. I think that that uh, – just that heinous comb-over is – is so like distracting, but also like that's the kind of person this is. A hundred percent, and it's great. Uh, uh, my favorite Gene Wilder is great. He's so great. Um, they're honest. They're just so. I know it's a, you know, I'm playing a little straw man here, but they're just so much better than Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane. <laughs> I think that Nathan Lane is a equal and different way of playing that character, but I don't think that. Uh, Matthew Broderick has ever come near the what Gene Wilder was able to do with this part. Just look in Gene Wilder's eyes and see the soul of a hound dog in the body of Willy Wonka, and it's it's amazing. I'll, I love the turn. I love the turn. So there's like the the pregnant, hungover, despicable silence after they realize that springtime for Hitler is a success. And it's just like, well, who's going to deliver the first word of like, I can't believe people actually like this. And Gene Wilder just starts chanting to himself, no way out, no way out, no way out. (laughs) Which I think is such, what a great bit of letting his internal monologue uh, just say it all. But as a movie though. Yeah. Like I said, the journey just feels very incomplete. It's so weirdly balanced. Like there's this first 30 minutes that's in their office and then they're like sprinting towards getting this show up. Yeah. And then like the show works and then the movie's over for the most part. There's like a quick epilogue, but there's not much movie there. It feels very slight when they suggest. It's only like an 87 minute movie to begin with. They suggest to Franz that he should just kill the actors and then they have like a hair a harebrained gag both in terms of what they're trying to do but also in the writing of just yeah, like yeah. let's put the dynamite down here and then they of course like set the dynamite off on themselves and then the movie's over right then they go to court and then they're in jail and then the movie's over i will say that kenneth mars as france is fucking insane and i was watching an interview where gene wilder was like i had no idea if like 
he was playing a crazy character, whether he was actually crazy. And it turned out he like slept in the helmet to prepare for the role, which is like perfect because that character absolutely looks like he sleeps in those Nazi fatigues. <laughs> right. Um, but then I also love, and I was thinking about this because I was watching the Will Ferrell version and it's so different to have like Will Ferrell do the bit, but the Kenneth Mars performance is scary and they're sitting at the table <laughs> and he's just repeating himself over and over again about Winston Churchill. And you get that weird, you, you understand how dramatic their sellout is because they're doing right. the thing where you listen to a crazy person go on and on and on thinking like, I could, if I can just make it to the end of this, I'll get my money, which tells you how craven these guys are. I like that. Absolutely. And I love him, too, and they sometimes cut to him while Springtime for Hitler is unfolding. And he's like, what is this BB? Zafir would not speak like this with Zabibi. <laughs> and it's so, like, he's like obs- he's visibly upset. And right. the people around him are like, why aren't you enjoying this, like, hilarious send-up to the Nazi party? What do you want to rate the producers? I think the producers may be bad good. I think it's pretty hilarious, but like I don't think it's that great of a movie. Yeah. It's like not that visually interesting. It's very much like a filmed play. That is deeply imbalanced, as you said. Right. That makes way more sense in what ultimately becomes on the stage. Um This movie needs musical numbers because its plot is like not that interesting. Also, the Keep It Gay musical number completely saves a part of the original that is like bad. Where like it's just a what is the joke when they go to the apartment of the director? Like that it was scary that they had to share a small elevator with a gay man? Like Or that he's yeah, he likes to wear women's clothes. Right. That works so much better as a musical number. Yeah, it's not it's not so bigoted. Forty years later, set to music. Yeah. So the original, I'm with you. I'm gonna give it a bad good as well. Incredible. We've really just debunked one of cinema's great comedies here as yep. being just fine. Uh, what about Top Secret? The first fucking movie of, that Val Kilmer was in. The very first? The absolute very first. Wow. I think it's funny in retrospect, because like, he's one of those people where people will be like, whatever happened to Val Kilmer? He was like a famous man who was in mainstream movies. And then you go back and watch this. It's like, this is a guy who from the beginning was very uneasy was like overcommitted, but also very uneasy with like what it was to be. He was so always Iceman. He was never going to be Maverick. Right. Yes. Um, and Iceman, if you watch that movie, is a deeply weird character. Just like this <laughs> Much guy. Much like Val Kilmer in all of his roles. I think Val Kilmer is deeply talented without any charm. And I think that keeps him oh. from breaking mm. a movie like this out in a major way. In this movie, Val Kilmer plays Nick Rivers, who... Also, this is a movie where, like, the period is confusing because they're riffing on so many things. I kept looking for the thing where it's like, this movie is set in 1963, but I don't think it is. I think it's supposed to be... I think it's supposed to be earlier. It's supposed to be, like, early 1950s because you have Nick Rivers as sort of like a an Elvis equivalent going to what is the newly constructed East Germany to perform at some cultural benefit. Um, Which is just a distraction. But they're not so Nazis, the... 
But it's so funny how they're like, even in the set design and the production design for this movie, it's almost like they've like just painted over the Nazi signs with just like non swastika eagles. Yes. And all, yeah, all the uniforms, all the sort of like jokes, this idea that they've like kidnapped a scientist so they he can make the ultimate like U boat. Oh, they're Nazi moves. Is a Nazi move for sure. Well, to imply that like East Germany was that interested in military dominance right after World War II is just like not historically accurate. Some of the espionage stuff is like very kind of like making fun of James Bondy. But like when you meet the other cast of characters, like the whole idea of like the partisans who you run across like late in the movie is very like Force 10 from Navarone or um, what was the Eastwood movie that we did? With uh, not where eagles dare, but like Kelly's heroes. Oh, Kelly's heroes! Like the people yeah. you run across oh, the in the countryside. Escape. Yeah, there's absolutely. like a shot-for-shot remake of the motorcycle scene uh, in this one with um, Steve McQueen. This just with Val Kilmer mm-hmm. and ten times as goofy. Right. <laughs> Look, I'm not the first guy who fell in love with a girl he met in a restaurant who then turned out to be the daughter of a kidnapped scientist, only to lose her to a childhood lover who she'd last seen on a deserted island and who turned out 15 years later to be the leader of the French underground. I know it. It all sounds like some bad movie. But this movie's not okay. Let's 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 shake away the the premise of this one, and because yeah, he like tries to help a woman find her scientist father, and they beat these to beat these Germans. Well, who cares? Whatever. Yeah. This movie is just a an ex, a, a reason for <laughs> a group of mischievous, like over caffeinated Jews to like <laughs> send up both physical, political whatever things they can find visual things it's just like the idea of filmmaking itself they're often sending up where they sure. like have a goofy like humphrey bogart shot of like zoomed in on a phone but then like the nazi crosses it and like the phone's very big in the shot because of how perspective works <laughs> and then the guy picks it up and it's a huge phone and like there's just something funny about like not expecting or like when they're looking at the cows through the binocular frames and the cows like jump into the black part that's supposed to show you that he's looking through binoculars. It's just like filmmaking gags. Yeah. Well, and you know what it really reminded me of was like clearly coming out of like a national lampoon or mad magazine tradition. Like the cows climbing over the binocular frame is like far side. Like that's something that would (laughs) literally happen in far side. Right. Well, then they cast a legitimate uh, bona fide cow as two men in a cow suit and to show to pretend that it's just two men they just velcro boots onto it right like that's hilarious at the end of the day it's like math it's like okay there are a movie with 200 jokes in it do you find (laughs) do you find 100 of them pleasing because then you'll probably like it but they're so like there's sometimes two or three levels to the jokes. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, the premise is already a joke, but then like you'll have something where um, 
Nick tries to go to dinner and the maitre d' is just like, sir, we require a jacket and tie at this establishment. Yeah. So Val Kilmer then goes into the background of the shot and proceeds to have a tuxedo made for him like while he's <laughs> modeling it while the Nazis are like arguing about like where they're sitting in the foreground, which is just so funny. And that's apparently the – the Zazzes have these rules of filmmaking and one of them is if you have to give like a boring plot point in some dialogue, there must be a joke behind it. And so it's the same thinking as like, there's this great scene in the naked gun where they're talking about like the, just the details of the case. You love naked gun. Oh my God. I love naked gun, but they're talking about the details of the case of this bar, Frank and his sergeant. And like, they, the waiter at, at their table puts down these like ridiculous tropical drinks that both have like 10 or 15 umbrellas in them. And then mm-hmm. he turns around and he's like not wearing any pants. Right. <laughs> and it, it's, I mean, it's just a visual gag to let you know that like whatever you're watching, like it doesn't, it's not, we're not here for the plot. We're here for the goofs. Yeah. But playing with the grammar of storytelling, I was trying to think about why you would inevitably like this very stupid movie so much, but you don't like the very stupid humor of Anchorman at all. Like to the point where like you couldn't even talk about it with me. But I think it is because the humor of Anchorman is so improvisational and about like the pathos of characters you don't like. And this is playing with the grammar of storytelling and the grammar of movies is something that you've like... you know, invested part of your life in. Yeah. I mean, for me, this is sort of like the reverse version of Gemini man where it's like, let's see. What is he possibly going to say? Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) let's see what the Zazz's can do with this sort of premise with not the visual technology, but sort of like the, rules so well done in your mind of what a script should look like that you can break every single one of them and do it with mathematic calculation right to explode this movie's neck from two kilometers away (laughs) (laughs) okay there's a reference um yeah you know i was just thinking too like looking at the the credits the zazz is broke up after 86's uh ruthless people and they all just get so much worse from there. I think because it was not all of them in the same room just throwing out hundreds of jokes per minute. It's just like Steve and Ed from The Bare Naked Ladies. Like, Steve is there for the emotional gravitas, and Ed's the one keeping him from getting too dark. Uh, so you think that Jerry is Stephen Page, and David, who went on to do the scary movies, is... It's been, right? Yep. Am I with you on Ed that? Robertson, 100%. Okay. And then where does Jim Abrahams fit into the BNL mer- metaphor? He's the drummer who wrote that song, Alcohol. Perfect. I think we need not examine that any further. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So uh, why don't we just keep it simple? Favorite bits from this movie? Because there's some great ones and there's some bad ones. Favorite bits? Well, to understand the bits, you have to understand like the three kinds of bits. There are subversions of scenes you've already seen from other movies. There are things that play with visually what you're expecting to see. Mm -hmm. And then there's dick and fart jokes. Sure. So I think my favorite like subversion of like a scene is the scene where Omar Sharif comes in, in the car (laughs) into the. (laughs) I love pretty hard at that. 
as now. A, it's Omar Sharif, and you just like don't expect to see him embarrassed this way in a movie. Also, and it plays in your expectations because for some weird reason, you know, he gets dropped off in the car crusher by surprise, but there's no cut to inside the car where you see, you know, the classic like, oh my God, I'm being crushed. You never see that. So you're like, what the fuck is happening here? Right. Well, but you believe him to maybe still be alive, and you're right. Yeah. Um, my Omar favorite visual. Sharif. Omar Sharif, incredible. Yeah. Um, my favorite visual gag is when they're running around some building and they open up a closet that says janitor on it and they uh-huh. open it up and there's just like a janitor ready to do whatever cleaning you might need him to do. <laughs> it's literally a janitor's closet. Uh-huh. And my favorite dick and fart one is the ballet where the woman is like jumping from bulging cod piece to cod piece. To, yeah bulging cod piece to bulging cod piece it's uh, pretty good yeah how about you can you do you can you break them into those three categories as well um the one that has to do with like script expectations is where michael goff speaking of the schumacher batman movies who plays the uh the kidnapped scientist is like, before they abducted me, I was working on a groundbreaking experiment to remove uh, salt from one-sixth of the world's oceans. Do you have any <laughs> idea what that would mean for the poor and starving? And Kilmer like looks up as though gazing into a spotlight on stage and goes, they'd have enough salt to last forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Which is totally like, also like it should be said that you go back and watch these Zaz movies. Like It is absolutely setting the table for everyone from david wayne to like 30 rock like that have they'd have enough salt to last forever is like totally a 30 rock joke um right i don't what what are my other options just visual expectations visual expectation script expectation visual expectation and then a, a dick and fart joke visual is when uh kilmer plays the macy's jingle to seduce the girl, and then they just hug and when crush, he tells they that crush story the guitar. About getting left at Macy's. That would go more to the script side, which is great. But then they go in for the embrace, and they just crush the guitar between them. I'm not an avowed lover of dick and fart jokes, so I don't know if I actually have one of those. Um, and I, I actually felt like that. Those, I mean, it's just my sense of humor, but it was those tended to be on the lamer side for me, like in the skeet shooting music video when like the joke is just like that woman has large breasts and thus they left it right, in, then... in the sand. Like, okay, <laughs> fine. Whatever. Uh, that's funny. Um, so, so I watched most of this movie and was confused as to why I hadn't seen it or even heard of it before. Mm-hmm. But then I started like piecing together like things that are so indulgent and strange about this movie as to make it like maybe unwatchable. And I think like the biggest offender in that category is the backwards uh, Peter Cushing scene. Right. Peter Cushing is in this movie for 30 seconds. And he's wearing like a weird mask on his face that makes it look like he has a bigger eyeball. And did you read on IMDb that they used the mask of the eyeball to reconstruct his face to make him for Rogue One? No. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. I've. This is a true story. Holy shit. Um, well, the, I, it just felt like, yeah, sometimes it's like you lose a, 
saying that this movie needs to have logic is ridiculous, but you do lose a certain amount of like movie coherence when you like drag a visual gag into something else. So like the the eyeball joke is just that he's a bookshop owner who has a magnifying glass up at the beginning, then it turns out his eyeball is that big. Yes, yes, yes. We got it. We got it. Yeah. But then that continues into a scene that doesn't make any sense. Right. He's like giving them some information. I guess the goof in their rule book is that the whole scene's running backwards. So they're like pushing books off of this bookshelf, but he, it, it's making it look like Val Kilmer's throwing them onto the bookshelf. Right. And then they like crawl up a fireman's pole, but like this, the um, supposedly Swedish subtitles is like, oh, we'll just climb up this pole. Mm-hmm. I had a moment watching this movie where like, it just made me think about how far like global culture has come. Like there's a bit in this movie where they meet everyone in the French resistance and they have names like croissant and latrine. <laughs> latrine. Which, deja vu. I mean, the deja vu one is great because like, don't I know you from somewhere else? Monsieur. <laughs> uh, that was a good bit. But also like, that was just like, Oh shit, man. Like that wouldn't be in a movie today because like, it wouldn't be funny. Cause people just know more about France. Right, it's you a pretty I mean? rudimentary uh, representation of French people. I think a better, more committed version of that bit was the priest who's about to be electrocuted and is just saying random Latin phrases. Ad that nauseum. was pretty good. <laughs> and then he like div- uh, goes down to pig Latin at the end. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, boy. That was pretty funny, too. Um, yeah. This movie's like politics aren't great, but they're like not as dated as you'd think they'd be. You can cut this out, but I still think the line of who's the best white basketball player. Oh, that's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. I don't know if the who do you root for at the Virginia Slims Open. Uh, I always vote against. I always root against the heterosexual woman. It's like maybe a little. They're just they're just like 80s sports jokes. They are just like 80s about like racist Martina Navratilova and, big... and like people liking Larry Bird too much, right? Like Lucy Guthridge should probably be able to participate in more bits as Hillary Flamont, um, instead of just like ones where her like breasts glow, right? <sighs> Considering what this movie is trying to do and the marks it's hitting, is it good? Good because it's an easy bad good, like easy. I think this one, to me, and also like fitting it in with our genre, I think it's a pretty funny send up to, you know, the the dicks who are on the other side of Bridge of Spies or whatever. Sure. This sort of like post-Nazi fascism that still lingered in that half of the country. Um, it's pretty barbed, shows how like kind of stupid these people are and like why – at the end of the day, sort of this like handsome, rugged American red blooded man is going to like is going to win in the end against fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it does pretty well. Yeah. And I think it just tries stuff like I can't remember the last time I saw a comedy that like tried something. So many things. So many things. It just throws every it's like watching the sort of climactic moment of a fireworks show for 90 minutes. Yeah. And. I think it works. I think it's a good good. I mean, it, was it David Zucker who said, like, they literally, what they learned from Airplane was that you should just put as many jokes into a movie as humanly possible and then you're done? Yeah. 
and they have like these these tenants that they stick to but other than that they just like throw a loose plot around their mathematical humor right um I'll just diverge and lay back a little bit and say that it's bad good. I know the intention is to be sophomoric, but um, I don't know. If they could have put a little bit more of that energy toward the ending as well, which is just a Wizard of Oz joke. One of the it's cheaper abrupt. ones of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's no it's more abrupt, abrupt than the producers, but, but oh, I call yeah. that bad good too. So I don't think I can call the producers bad good and top secret exclamation point good good so a, a bad good for i me. mean who cares you know what this is a, the podcast you can do whatever you want i guess i can it really did make me think of like wet hot american summer though like some of the Certainly. depth of the jokes I, but i fucking love wet hot american oh, wet summer Hot's amazing but like uh the the like ooh, baby i like i wish it had two barrels like in the fifth verse of the song of seed serpent <laughs> at the beginning it's just very very committed did you see that it was on the Billboard chart? It was three Nick songs that all had to do with skeet shooting and then an Eric Clapton song underneath. <laughs> well, wait, and the third one was a duet, Your Skeet Shooting Heart featuring Tammy Wynette or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. Oh, Let me ask you this. Wow. Um, do you think there are other examples of Nazi satires. I mean, I, I hinted last week on the podcast that Inglorious Bastards could be conceived as a Nazi satire. I don't think that's really a satire. That's just like a sort of alternate history. Yeah, it's a fantasist like version Ooh. of. It's a fantasist. Use more words. <laughs> okay, here comes more. Um, yeah, it's a fantasist rearranging of history to satisfy rage. Um, which I think, honestly, I think you see the limits of humor in these movies, especially as they pull more and more toward the present and especially as they get more and more politically ambitious, where something like Inglorious Bastards, while viewed as more problematic in many people's eyes, I think is less complicated because like what has aged great, um, the fact that there shall be no quarter for Nazis and that we should cathartically expunge them. Well, I was just going to say, like, how is one supposed to justify a movie from the 80s trying so much with this, like, tired premise? And then you have, like, Tarantino trying something so... These movies have always been on the cutting edge of, like, trying something narratively or visually. You know, whether it's, like, playing with history and trying it again or playing with what you literally expect to see on screen. How can you then allow a movie like Jojo Rabbit to be so boring? Hmm. And, like, the only visual gags are, like, these Wes Anderson, like, cute violence. And the right. rest of it's just, like, your, I mean, it's just, like, the premise of your, you know, required reading seventh grade novel that incidentally has to do with the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about, like, Starship Troopers? See, I think, again, it's a swing. It's maybe not a very good swing, but it's a swing. And I think that's maybe what I found so questionable about Jojo Rabbit is that, like, if you want to be a satire, especially right now, you got to swing and you got to swing pretty hard. You know, I was going back to the 
the great dictator speech, um, which is a famous fucking speech. The part that people remember is the fact of like being pro-democracy and not wanting to rule the world and not being driven by greed. But there's the part where he says, our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. And that felt to me more resonant as a roadblock to people making a lot of effective satire today because you you know you read the mel brooks quote and he's like well you have to the best way to take down a fascist is to make fun of him and it's like well but why doesn't but that like, seem to half work Half this country believes that to be true and then the other half thinks that like we're being mean yeah so like why doesn't that work is it just because joe just it just because how could you possibly do a political satire without media is that why part of why jojo rabbit feels so quaint um, I don't know, but it's I like, I have no idea. You don't, this is what confused me. And I think it's a serious note to end on, but we do need to kind of tie a ribbon around the category. If somebody said, I'm going to make the great dictator for Trump, I would be like, no, don't. That sounds awful. Like, I don't, I think most people would roundly agree. Like, don't make a Trump movie. What would you say? I think we're so, we know so much about the, psychology or lack thereof of him it's like why would that be necessary is that just because movies can't stand up to twitter but i think you already have examples like that comedy central show you know about trump and you have like some successful children's books that it's like because he's a child like this is a funny satire and they're right you know and these books are successful pieces of intellectual property uh in the consumer world and that's great. But uh, yeah, I agree with you that it just may speak more to cinema that like maybe The Great Dictator worked as a movie because like that's the big medium of that time. I think that's But maybe right. the big entertainment now is like these hurtful memes on Instagram. That might be it. Like we just know so much about him and I'm totally with you that I think that pop psychology is such a bad way to try and understand a man that in some ways is not even worth understanding um as a human you know what i mean like i don't think he's a very deep guy at all i wish he had the complexity of hitler (laughs) spoken as a jewish person spoken Uh, as a jewish person (laughs) i wish donald trump had the complexity of hitler um it seems like it's this Donald Trump is what Hitler would have become had he been a successful artist, or at least his dad bought his way in. Yeah. I I guess and maybe I'm answering my own question here. I think the better satires to be had lie in movies like Sorry to Bother You that satirize the madness that makes a shallow human like him possible. I don't like think the, it needs to be him. Or like the big short stuff like that mm-hmm. i think like those but vice pres- didn't work along these lines i don't think but i think like jojo rabbit vice attempted to humanize dick cheney at the end whereas i think the big short was like pretty critical of all these horrible finance bros right so yeah I think it's the critique. I think if it's the sharper the critique, the more resonant the satire. And mm-hmm. if you really like shy away from offending Nazis in 2019, like maybe your movie's not going to work. Did we solve it? Maybe. <laughs> Thanks, Tony, for coming on the show. Um, okay. Thank you one and all for listening to today's episode of Be Real. 
don't tolerate Nazism if you see any. As always, thanks to the playlist. Thanks to California College of the Arts writing MFA program. Thanks to you, buddy. Hey, uh, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, I'm glad we have our our podcast to bring us together. All right. Be well. Auf Wiedersehen. Tschüss. <laughs> Deutschland is happy and gay.